If you would open your Bibles to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 14. Let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven, as we bow before you this morning, as we gather together to worship you, to sing together, to pray together, to focus on your word, we desire, Father, again, to understand your word. We, we hunger, Father, for your word to permeate every aspect of our life. Father, we want to be able to spontaneously think your thoughts after you. We want our minds, Father, to be molded and shaped by your word. The Father, we may always think truthfully. The Father, we may understand things according to the truth of your word. The Father, we would know you, that we would better comprehend ourselves in light of what the word says. So, Father, we ask that you bless our time in your word. We thank you for preserving your word for us. We ask that you would give to us, Father, more than just a, an emotional affection for your word. We ask that you would always keep us from superstitiously thinking that if we read your word or if we have a copy of your word, that somehow things will go better for us because we simply have it and we've read it. We pray, Lord, that it would always be our desire that we continue to be transformed by the ministry of your spirit in us using the word. And so, Father, knowing from your word that you are with us, again, we ask that you would continue to work in our hearts and our minds. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Romans 14, verse 7. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and, rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. As I said last week, it is difficult to face the truth of the fact that many of us, and maybe at times all of us, but many of us have set up our lives in such a way that it becomes necessary to hide much of our life from other people. What God desires and what we should crave is the death of sin in us and the birth of truth. And as I mentioned, repentance is where that begins. What he says here in verses 7 through 10, that we don't live to ourselves, we don't die to ourselves, but we live to the Lord. For that to happen, repentance must be a part of our life not just something that we did at one time when we came to know Christ. Keep in mind that when we speak of repentance as Christians, that again, this is not a negative thing. The goal is not to make us feel guilty. This is not an roundabout way to try to scold us and to shake us into doing right. Because as believers, we want to be told the truth. We should want those things that we have forgotten to to be brought up again and remind us. We want to be corrected. So So being corrected or being reminded of things that maybe we have forgotten or where we are failing is never viewed by the Christian as a bad thing. It's never negative. 
As I've said many times before, if you, if you have a child or if you have ever played sports, a good coach most of the time is negative. It's kind of odd. He can actually be negative in a positive way. But he's negative because he's always looking for what? Something wrong. So he can correct it to make you better. It's true. A coach will praise you when you get it and you do right. But if that's all the coach does, the team's going to lose a lot. That's just the way that it is in sports. And so in the same way that, of course, the young, younger people sometimes have to learn that when the coach is criticizing you, it's a good thing. It's always bad if you're playing and the coach never bothers to take a moment to point out anything you've done wrong. Because that normally means you watch all the games from the bench. It may be a good view, but that's not why we're on the team. We want to be engaged. We want to be in the game. And so that's the idea here with us. And so we want to make sure that we don't, again, allow the world to somehow think that all of this, what we're doing as we do with repentance, is, is this negative thing that it's oppressive. It's really very freeing, even in the midst of even heavy conviction. So as we said last week, repentance is nothing less than the complete relinquishing of one's right to oneself. If we take it to its logical conclusion, that is what repentance is. It is to cease in all matters of life, in, in every way that we live, from being independent of God in any way or anything. Last week, we, I looked at eight vital elements of repentance. We didn't spend a lot of time on it, but we looked at those things. And remember that without all eight, repentance isn't complete. It's not real repentance. But also, repentance cannot be made up or forced on anyone. Repentance is total surrender to God. Repentance is refraining completely from depending in any way on our own power or ability to come into favor with God or to remain in favor with God. It means that we are trusting completely in God to do the job for us. It is also understanding. Repentance is also understanding that God is God in and over all things, and it is living in light of that. Because again, the only one who can do that is the one where repentance is a part of their life, not just a part of maybe their vocabulary. Remember that man is either self-centered or is God-centered. There's nothing in between. Repentance is to decide that one will forever relinquish the throne, scepter, and crown of his life to God unconditionally. And of course, remember that to decide that often means that we decide that almost every day because we keep trying to find ways to keep control ourselves. Only those who believe with the heart believe and obey God. And only God can change the heart and enable it to believe. Because again, for us, it, it is impossibility. So remember when we use the phrase that you must believe in God from the heart, that does, has nothing to do with our emotions. It's, it's, it's not how affectionate you feel towards God. Romans 10, verse 9 and 10 reads, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. To get another view of what happens in Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 26, it says this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. 
Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. One of the reasons why I like the phrasing in Ezekiel 36, because this is often my prayer, is he says, I will cause you to walk in my statutes. I want God to do that in my life, because I don't always want to do that. That's not always normal. And I know that I I can and I have resisted that. So I do. I want him to make me even against my will. Because I know what he wants is best. So repentance, again, is then to also accept that how we see things can be wrong. No matter how right they may seem to be. So as we learn from the scripture, as we understand what the Bible says, we, we learn how to view the world, how to understand people, how to understand ourselves. The Bible is always going to be correcting our understanding of things because our understanding of things is at least mixed with the old sin nature, the way we have been before, the way that the world declares that things are. And so I want that to be corrected. I want to, I I recognize that I can and I have and I will see things wrongly and I want to see them in light of the Bible. That's why for myself, and I think it's important, I want to, to think biblically. To think biblically doesn't mean I'm always quoting Bible verses. But it means that, that in my life, I reason from the Scripture. What, when I look at things, I seek to understand them from what the Bible tells me. How the Bible informs me to understand the world. To understand human nature. How to understand human behavior. How to understand our thoughts. How to understand our propensity to do wrong. Uh, all those things are formed by what the Word of God has to say. It is the willingness at all costs to be wrong in that which we have been convinced is right. Repentance is deciding that unless God does it, it's not going to be done. It is understanding that God is God in and over all things, and again, living in light of that. So repentance, then, is faith in action. Remember again that repentance is impossible. There is not a human being on earth who is capable of repentance on their own, and there never has been. Turn, if you will, to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 32. And I want to read from verses 36 through 41. Again, as I speak of repentance, too often when we, when we deal with it, when you read books on repentance, oftentimes... The goal is to explain what repentance is to help us to better understand what takes place when one comes to Christ or what goes on when one comes to Christ. And that is not a bad thing. But we also want to understand that though it means the same thing, that it is also something that we need to embrace because what repentance is, in a sense, for the non-believer is always true for the believer as well. It's an ongoing thing in our lives. I know I've shared this with you many times before. It's a very good quote from uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the one that is deceased, not the one that's living now. And he said he was asked to give a definition of conversion. And I think it's really, it's really brilliant. I, I first heard this from J.I. Packer. And he, and he said this. He said, conversion is giving all that I know of myself to all that I know of Christ. And then he said, and repeating it every day. So even though salvation itself, to be justified by God, is, takes place in a moment in time, is a one-time thing, what it does is it sets me on a path, and it opens up before me, now to continue what I just did, 
because I want to, because I love God. I now have been converted. I now love God. Because I love God, I am now much more aware that every single aspect of my life is sinful, needs to be corrected, needs to be transformed. I want that. And so I will continue, as I learn more about myself, to turn that over to God. I also learn more about God. My faith grows. I trust him more. And I turn that over to God, uh, turn that over to God, what I'm learning about myself, and I repeat that for the rest of my life. It's not a negative thing. It's a wonderful thing. Jeremiah 32, beginning in verse 36. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. Behold... I will gather them out of all countries where I have driven them in my anger, in my fury, in great wrath. I will bring them back to this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. Then I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for the good of them and their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from doing them good. But I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Yes, I will rejoice over them to do them good. And I will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. Now in the context of what Jeremiah is giving, the message that God is giving, it is for Israel. This is what God is going to do for Israel. This is going to be happening in the future. But what he does for them, he does for us in salvation. He will cause us to dwell safely. Now, for them, I believe that does mean that uh, in the future, Israel will dwell free from all their enemies. I, I take that literally. But this idea that we will dwell safely, I will be at peace with God, at peace with myself. I'll be at peace with others. Now, they may not be at peace with me, but I will be at peace with them. He says we shall be his people. He will be our God. That is true. He says he will give us uh, what we read earlier, a, a heart of flesh. Here he says one heart. As believers, we have one heart. It is the same. Our hearts independently beat for God, which is actually what all of us, it's the same. So we have one heart, one mind, one way. Why? That we may fear God. And it's for our good and for our children after us. He has made an everlasting covenant with us. The new covenant that we're in, he has made. And so he will not turn away from doing us good. That may not always be what we would like, but he will always do what is good. He says he will put fear of him in our hearts so that we will not depart. And we should pray for that, that we will not depart from the word of God, that we won't drift. Because we are, you know, there's a hymn we sing where it says we are prone to wander. And so we pray that God would not allow us to wander to not allow us wander far before he brings us back in. So let's look at it this way. Ever since Eve was deceived and Adam partook of the forbidden fruit with her, man was enslaved to do his own thing. Man locked himself in a burglar-proof vault, presuming to keep all the treasure in it and threw away the keys. But his hope perished the day he disobeyed and stole himself from God. If God did not come and open that vault, man would perish because man has no way of changing himself or his lot in life. Man, and again, whenever I say man, it's us, remember that, is not only chained in any ability to redeem himself or to reverse his disobedience, 
He is also chained in that he believes with a false hope that he can save himself. In fact, if you sit back and you watch and listen carefully to what politicians say, not necessarily local ones, but national politicians and international politicians, behind many of their statements and ideas is a belief that man can save himself. Now, they're not speaking of salvation in the sense of redeeming man from hell. Most of them don't even believe in that. But they see the direction that mankind is going. They all know that it's not good. There's an increase in violence and everything else that's going on. All the horrific things that happen. And man is convinced with the right politicians, with the right plan, with the right government, with the right ideas, mankind can save himself apart from God. All of that really is an exercise in rebellion. Because you don't hear them calling upon God to come and give them wisdom and to help them. Man is enamored with himself as we are enamored with ourselves. Man, again, who is stuck in this vault, has been clawing with his fingernails at the 12-foot-thick solid steel walls of the vault, banging his head against them, kicking and cursing at them. He has been trying to think of every possible way to escape, and all attempts have been utterly useless. Man tries to come to terms with the owner of the vault. He has bargained, reasoned, and argued with him, begged, flattered, and screamed at the vault and at the vault owner. He's promised to be good, pretended to love, made sacrifices, has guaranteed that he would pay all damages, even to reward the owner if the owner would only listen to him and see it his way and accommodate or entertain his thoughts and ideas. That is man. That's what man is doing. Man says that locking himself in the vault was not his fault, that it was a mistake, that he would never do it again if he were to have another opportunity. He also argues that if only the vault owner would give him some help, just a little bit, and enough time, he could then find his way out. All those are reasons and excuses that we may have thought, used ourselves, and we see that being used all the time. That is why the Bible says that repentance is a gift from God, because we're unable to bring that up on our own. That's not the approach that man takes. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 says, A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Man is enslaved to sin. That is the vault that we are in. No matter what man tries to do, he cannot escape. There is a a movie that was made uh, that was called The Village, which I think... I don't think the producer and the director and the writer intended this to be the message, but it is a great, great picture. Now, I don't know how to tell you this if you've, uh, without ruining the movie if you've never seen it, but I can't help it. But the way that it works is this, is that there's, there's increasing crime, and, and a good number of families have been victimized by this, and they are tired of it. And they, are, and they, they get together, and they've agreed that they are going to find a way to break away from the crime that is out there, from the curse of crime, or we could say even from the curse of sin. And they have an idea. 
and it seems to be brilliant. They move into the middle of nowhere, which isn't quite in the middle of nowhere as you may think it is, but they move into the middle of what they think is nowhere, and they create their own community. When they know when they have children, their children grow, they've got to find a way to control people from wanting to leave this little village they've built. And they create a myth. And the myth is, is that outside the boundaries are monsters or monstrous creatures that basically feed on human blood, not vampires, but they, they kill people, they eat them, that type of thing. And so they even go through the trouble of erecting these huge outposts, these lookout towers, and they have torches burning, and they, and they go through the motion of having individuals who take turns watching to warn, and they even have a system set up where they at times, because they've all agreed as adults, to give a false alarm, but nonetheless, everybody has their shelters, they go and they lock the doors, and they have this costume someone wears, and they kind of go through the village and do something to make it look like this creature's been, and they've been saved for that moment to kind of perpetuate this, 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 this myth. The goal is, is they want to live a life that is very moral. It is rule-based on being kind, etc., because they want to keep the evil out. And it seems to be working very well. They share things. They love each other. There's, they're able to solve almost all of their problems. And so things are going really well. They're keeping the world out. But this is what they forgot. This is what they didn't realize. It's not the evil outside that's the great danger. It's the evil inside. And so in this perfect environment that they've created, things begin to go wrong. And a murder is committed. Not from someone from the outside, but from someone on the inside, because that's where evil is. And I just think it's a fantastic picture, a, a one that you, if you were to watch it with unbelieving friends, because people don't always do this anymore. They just watch a movie entertainment, they go on their way. Say, Let's just stop and think about this. Let's talk about you know, what the philosophy behind that. Because I think it's just fascinating because it's very appealing to many individuals. Many religious groups and cults have used that same theory. The idea if we break away, if we go off by ourselves, create a utopia, whatever it happens to be, we can eliminate evil. Many science fiction stories, same way. Go somewhere else, another planet, whatever it is, create a utopia. Understand how genes affect people's behavior and eliminate those with bad genes. Eliminate those who have the potential to do evil. Is it somehow we can pick and choose, well, these will do evil, that's somehow because I won't or others won't. And in the end, they all fail. Because at least science fiction writers will know this, even though they won't attribute it to God. But the problem is always what? Within. Always. Christianity has always been the one who's declared that truth. And even though the world, I think, knows it's true, they don't want to admit it if we can just overcome it. And that's why there continues to be efforts to understand. There's, you know, this is not just something that comes out of the, uh, the horrors of World War II and what the, the doctors in Nazi Germany. There are still those today. I don't know if they're in our country or not as far as labs that work on this, um, but... There are, there are those who are working in laboratories trying to determine if they can figure out genetically who will be a serial killer, who will be a cruel dictator. They want to identify that. And the reason why, in the end, for many, is if we can identify that, then... When a woman gives birth to her child, 
We can check them genetically. And if they have that broken chromosome or whatever, or extra, whatever it is, we can execute them. The idea is they want to play God. And there are many who are convinced that is the way to go. You can even read now, you can find things on the criminal gene or the criminal chromosome. That still idea is still out there. But we understand that mm, it's not because that's not the problem. It is, I guess you could say, genetic. It's inherent in everyone. But it's not because of an extra or a missing chromosome. It's because we're born spiritually dead. So back to mankind in this vault. There must come a time when the prisoner must recognize that all is futile, that he, by his own fault, locked himself in, that the owner really doesn't need him for any of his supposed virtues, and that he has no power whatsoever to undo his predicament. He must come to the place where he lies strictly on the owner's judgment, the owner's goodwill and mercy. He must recognize that the owner is not obligated to him in any way, at any time, except as he would choose to obligate himself. That's repentance. Even those who at times who want to proclaim that they want to come to God, want to determine the ground rules. I'm going to come to God on my terms. That is what is behind AA meetings. If you think about it, it is a God of your own choosing, which is a God of your own imagination, which will always be a God that is created in your image, a one that you will be able to bargain with, one where you will be able to establish the rules, the one where you will be able to establish a lower level of righteousness, where you will be the one who is able to say, well, I've done enough, and that should be considered, or at least I tried, and that should be considered. No, we come to terms with God. God has revealed himself to us, not only to the non-believer in bringing him to salvation, but again, as believers, I must be reminded of this. I'm not now a child, and now as a child, I can bargain with God. It's not that we allow our children's friends from neighborhood to come in and bargain with us and say that, no, they should be allowed to do certain things. But our own children, because they're our own children, don't have a standing with us where they can say, well, but it's, it's more fun if I can write on the wall. And so what can I give you that you will allow me to write on the wall? There's nothing. The rule is absolute. I am the parent, period. And our children, from the time they're born, rebel against that. Not every moment. And they're still cute. But they're cute little sinners with black hearts. That's just all there is to it. And we, are, and we recognize that. Repentance, again, is a gift of God and is undeserved. It does not originate in the one who repents. Again, that's true for both the unbeliever as well as the believer. If a person experiences genuine repentance, it is strictly because God has granted that person the most precious of gifts. God opens the vault of his own volition in his chosen time without price and without trade. How many times we find ourselves as believers unwilling to repent because of our pride? That's why, again, pride is a gift and undeserved. Remember that in the vault there is no light. It is perfect darkness within. Psalm 82.5, 
They know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Let me just point out that one of the difficulties we have today as believers in our country is though, oh, obviously, Psalm 82.5 is true, we sometimes think it with contempt towards others. We see how the non-believing world acts, and we think they know nothing. They understand nothing. That's not how we should be thinking about that. It should be filled with compassion and love, because that's exactly where we were before God changed our lives and changed our hearts. And so it's not said with contempt or with anger. It is still true. They know nothing. And so I should have understanding. They understand nothing. So I should have compassion. They walk about in darkness. And so I seek to show them grace. John 3.19. And this is the condemnation. That light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light. Because their deeds were evil. Isaiah 42.16, I will lead the blind by a way they did not know. I will guide them on paths they have not known. I will turn darkness to light in front of them and rough places into level ground. This is what I will do for them. I will not forsake them. That is what we pray for God to do for others. Man, however, though, has become quite acquainted with his vault of darkness He has come to forget that he's in a vault or that there is any other option. He has become comfortable without light, food, and water. He's become a creature of darkness, satisfied yet not satisfied, full yet hungry, comfortable yet restless, with eyes yet blind, with ears yet deaf, with a mind presuming to know much, yet void of understanding. Jesus Christ is the one and the only light. He alone has the keys to death and hell. The vault is death and hell from which there is no escape but by him. He is the owner of the vault. The owner has the keys. He is the one, sure, and only hope of the world. He is the key. The combination to the lock on the safe is death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus Christ accomplished all that and leads the way for us to follow him into that same death, burial, and resurrection. There is no other way. Repentance is more than a mere change in outlook. It is the beginning of a transition from darkness to light, from hate to love, from ignorance to knowledge, from hell to heaven, from death to life. The prison door will be opened when God determines and the man will be free to come out and to live. He will have light to see the constriction and darkness of the vault in contrast to the new wide open spaces. He will have food and drink and freedom to come and go, and he will be very thankful. He will no longer trust in himself. He will trust in God through Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son, by the power of the resurrection. That is why it is so tragic and sad that at times, I've even heard believers in conversations talking to someone else, and the subject of death comes up, and that person will ask, the unbeliever may ask the believer, are you going to heaven? And they'll say, yes, I am. I'm a Christian. And then the person may ask them, well, how do you know? And then they say, I'm just hoping that my good outweighs my bad. Where did that come from? Because that's not in the Bible. And again, we know as believers, no matter how good 
If you've been a believer for 20 years, no matter how much good you've done for the past 20 years, it will never outweigh your bad. I am going because the penalty has already been paid by Christ. As a Christian, I would never be able to do enough good. If God, in his grace, which he would not do because the Bible tells us that, but if God, in his grace, then determined that I would then be able to live a perfect life from now on, I would still not be able to make up for the evil that I've done. Period. It is an impossibility. His life will have just begun. Our life as a believer will have just begun. The Lord Jesus Christ will be the reason for our living. That is repentance. There is no other. Repentance is the initiatory, the initiatory stage of reconciliation with God. With genuine, genuine repentance is the discovery that the kingdom of God reigns supreme over all and that all things are determined from above. With repentance comes the beginning of life, hope, peace, joy, love, understanding, true righteousness, purpose, and direction. That's why Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Stubborn fools despise wisdom and discipline. And so repentance is the first stage of reconciliation with God. With repentance, God comes to dwell within the person. Another work then begins, a work as great, maybe even greater than the one before, until the penitent soul enters rest. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 3, says, Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. That is in a letter to a church. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes, which is another word to use when we talk about repentance, shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. A paraphrase of verse 12 reads this way, All who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God, and they will never have to leave it. And I will write on them the name of my God, and they will be citizens in the city of my God the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from my God, and I will also write on them my new name. Repentance takes the soul out of the slums and into an upper-class neighborhood, out of back alleys rummaging for garbage to eat into a palace of sumptuous dining. But we must count the cost. When I say we must count the cost, that is not a negative statement to the one who loves Christ. Because the cost really is to give up that which is bad for us. It is to give up control or the control I think I have for myself. It is to give up enslavement to sin. It is to give up those sins that I may still embrace. It is to give up that pride that wants to present a certain posture to other people. But nonetheless, it is a cost because it feels like we're giving up ourselves and that we're going to be lost along the way. But it isn't. As Jesus said, those who lose their life for my sake will find it. It's not a new message. Paul and Barnabas said this in Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 21. It says about them. And when they had preached the good news, the gospel, to that town and made disciples of many of the people, they went back to Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, establishing and strengthening the souls and the hearts of the disciples, urging and warning and encouraging them to stand firm in the faith and telling them 
that it is through many hardships and tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. It is not that we must earn our entrance into the kingdom of God by going through hardships and tribulations. That's not what it is. I'm going to enter into the kingdom. That's going to happen to me. I am already a citizen of that kingdom. But along the way, there's no other way to go except through hardships and difficulties and tribulations. It is repentance that's going to help me along the way as I repent of my selfishness that rebels against the hardships and tribulation. It is repentance of my laziness uh, and looking for the easy way that would keep me on the straight and narrow, that would be able to help me to respond correctly to these hardships and tribulations. God has many reasons why we're going to go to these hardships and tribulations, whether they are personal or corporate, whether it's because of persecution that comes to us culturally or the persecution with our family, or maybe just the everyday troubles that we and everyone else in the world has to face. We've not been delivered from those yet. That day is coming. True repentance, then, is not an eternal joy ride, but it will bring much joy, and it will deepen our joy, and it guarantees joy. It will cost you your life, but it is a life that's not worth holding on to. It is a life that is not worth keeping because the reward for us, that new life in Christ, is exquisite in every way. That is the mindset that the non-believing world will never grasp and we don't have to communicate that to them. We have to go back to the beginning. They're separated from God. They love darkness. They have no understanding. We pray that God in his mercy will reveal to them as we live and share the gospel of our lives, of how we live life and respond to life, praying that we'll see both the joy of Christ and see Christ in us. And if nothing else, our lives will shine as bright lights in the midst of the darkness, and they will then want to have what we possess. Not because they think that we're perfect, but because they see the joy and they see the contentment And they see the depth of love that they don't have. Because we have what they don't, that is why some will try to squelch what we have because they hate it. And others will say, no, that makes no sense. I want to know what that is. Let's pray. Father, heaven, we thank you again for the incredible gift of repentance that you have given to each one here who knows Christ. And Father, for some of us, Though we repented, it seems that we have kind of drifted away for all kinds of reasons. And those reasons don't really matter because it was, it's the wrong direction. And as believers at times, and maybe for some of us often, there is a lack of joy, a lack of contentment. There is fear, fear of the future. There is fear of death. There is fear of what others may think. There is fear of being ostracized by society a fear of being mocked. And so we are paralyzed by fear. It reveals itself in anxiety that we suffer from because, Father, we do not repent. We do not recognize and embrace that you are truly sovereign over all things. And so, Father, we ask that, Lord, that you would convict us of the great need that we have 
to come back to the truth of the word of God and to realize that repentance is not just something for others, but it is for all of us, and especially me as an individual. I pray that we'll see the joy that is in repentance, that we will see how positive it is and how it frees us, Father, from bondage and from misery. I pray, Lord, that living a life of repentance will bring in our life, as it must, humility. And that humility will then bring about in us gentleness and kindness towards others. That, Father, we may then represent the gospel well, regardless of how the world treats us, regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in. We thank you, Lord, for not being impatient with us. Because, Lord, if any of us had been you, we probably would have just wiped us out a long time ago because of our great failings. But, Lord, as it says in Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so we ask and we confess to you, as it says in 1 John 1, 9, our sin. And ask, Lord, that you forgive us for not repenting as we repent of that. And then, Lord, that you would strengthen us and encourage us to continue in that way. And, Father, we do pray for those who may not know Christ, whether it is through a pride they recognize or perhaps a stubbornness that they no longer see. I pray that you would convict them of their desperate need of Christ and that they are the one that we read about. They are in that vault. And all the things we read that man seeks to do, they probably have already tried, and they find themselves stuck in darkness with the evil they cannot escape. And we pray that the light of Christ will burst in their heart and mind, and they will believe in the gospel of Christ. And so, Father, we thank you. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.